Good morning, and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Um, and also, Merry Christmas and good morning to so many of our fellowship that are worshiping online today and other parts of our country. I know we have so many folks that are uh, traveling and with other family members. But also a welcome to um, those of you who are visiting today because you're visiting family, and I pray that you have a blessed and a delightful Christmas season. Well, it's true. Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year, is it not? Amen? And without a doubt, Christmas is, as it is culturally celebrated, it is a, it's really mostly about kids. I think you would probably agree with that. Certainly, children are what energize the Christmas experience for all of us. And I have just um, noticed over the years that it never seems to fail at some point in the Christmas season, even as old as I am. I reflect back on my childhood Christmas experiences and can even remember a few of the toys that I received um, at that time and what Christmas was like way back then. But I cannot have that experience of reflecting back that far without noticing, oh my, how the times have changed. Is there an agreement with that in the house this morning? There are signs all around us that tell us that we're not living in the same day that we were living in back in the, back before. <clears throat> but I ran across something uh, in the last few days, and for those of us who were raised in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, if you were raised in the 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s, raise your hand. Let me see how many I'm talking to this morning. Okay, it's quite a few of you. Well, see if this uh, resonates with you. We took aspirin, we ate blue cheese dressing, we ate tuna from a can, and we didn't get salmonella. Our baby cribs were covered with bright colored lead-based paint, and we didn't die. We had no childproof lids on medicine bottles or the doors or the cabinets. When we rode our bikes, we had no helmets, and we freely hitchhiked to places that we needed to go. As children, we would ride in cars with no seat belts and no car seats. Our older sister was our, car, was our car seat. Riding the back of a pickup truck on a warm day was always a special treat. We drank water from a garden hose and not from a bottle. We shared one soft drink with four friends and no one died from it. We ate cupcakes, white bread, real butter, drank soda pop with sugar in it, and we were not overweight because we were always playing outside. Obviously, the times have changed. <laughs> we would leave home in the morning, play all day, as long as we were back home by the time the street lights came on. No one was able to reach us all day because there were no cell phones. We spent hours building <laughs> I did this hours building go-karts out of scraps and then ride down a big hill only to realize we didn't put brakes on it. After running into the bushes a few times, we learned how to solve the problem. We didn't have PlayStations or Xboxes. We didn't sit on a couch and look at a screen all day. There was no Hulu, Netflix, iTunes, no cell phones, laptops, internet, or Facebook friends. No, we had real friends, and we went outside and found them in person. We fell out of trees. We got cut broke bones and teeth, and there was no lawsuit from these accidents. We ate worms and mud pies from dirt, and the worms did not live in us forever. 
We were given BB guns on our 10th birthday. <laughs> down, boy. Down, 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 down. We made up games with sticks and tennis balls, and although we were told it would happen, we never poked out our eye. We rode bikes. We walked to a friend's house and knocked on the door, and sometimes we just walked in. Little League had tryouts, and not everyone made the team. Those who didn't learned to deal with disappointment. Imagine that. The idea of our parents bailing us out of prison, are you kidding me? They actually sided with the cops. There were no timeouts. There was, there was only belts, switches, and wooden spoons. We had freedom, failure, success, discipline, and responsibility, and we learned to deal with it all. How many of you were raised like that? Some of the young ones are going, glad I wasn't living back then. <laughs> well, that's a little of what life is like being raised back in the good old days. <clears throat> so lots of things have changed, uh, but I notice every Christmas season that so much of what we sing at Christmas time remains the same. Um, there were a few, there have been a few new songs that have emerged and, and have done really well, uh, like Mary Did You Know, which I'm still not happy Pastor Brent hasn't sung it this Christmas season. Maybe this is not over with yet, because <clears throat> nobody sings it quite like Pastor Brent, in my opinion. You better clap, Janice, you're sitting right next to him. But, of course, there's always the Christmas classics. And, and, you know, I, I'm really, I, I, I've listened to Christmas on my radio holiday station, and, and it's mostly the songs that we sang back when I was a kid. And, of course, Christmas classics from who remembers Nat King Cole, Perry Como, Andy Williams, Tony Bennett, and those songs never die, and we seem to never get tired of them. There was one night that Becky and I got tired of them, though. Um, there's a lady in this church who's dearly beloved. Her name is, I shouldn't give her name. Her name is Theta Hall. <laughs> she is um, hopefully watching online this morning. Last I recall, she is one of the three longest standing, oldest members of this congregation. Theta is... Um, this is a piece of work. There's the only way you can say it. To know her is to love her. And uh, Theta was, has always been full of surprises. Well, she uh, got some folks together one night and decided to go Christmas caroling. I don't see, Becky said the other night, you just don't see people caroling as much as they used to. I know we're in a different day and time. But she got like all of her relatives, which was most of Tarrant County, um, in a big vehicle of a bus type thing of some kind, and she got them, and she was going to go. Well, um, they came by our house, and Becky and I were out in the early part of the evening, um, and uh, I don't I assume we were sh Christmas shopping or whatever, and our kids, Shaler and Sheridan, were home. And so she said, well, we really wanted to surprise your, Theta says to Sheridan, we really want to surprise your parents. We're going to come back later, and would you let us in if we come back later? And, of course, Sheridan, and we're still trying to figure out how old she, our daughter might have been, maybe 9, 10, something, eight or, between 8 and 10, something like that. And so <clears throat> Becky and I get home, 
And Becky decides that she would, was gonna, that was the night she was going to bake a lot of cookies and some goodies for the holiday season. So she had that all spread out all, all over the kitchen for whatever was going to happen. And, and um, it got to be probably 10 o'clock and we were tired and Becky and I retired for the evening. And so, but Sheridan asked us if she could stay up and watch and finish uh, some Christmas holiday thing she was watching. We thought, you know, it's Christmas season, you know, didn't have to get up in the early morning. But, you know, what's the harm? So we let her stay up. Well, that was all part of the plan. So about two hours into restful sleep, <laughs> Becky and I are sound asleep. Theda somehow makes contact with our daughter, Sheridan. Am I boring you with my story? Okay. She makes contact with her. Sheridan goes and quietly opens the front door and lets about 30 people were you part of this? Shame on you for doing it. Can you just imagine what it's like to be in a deep, sound sleep and have 30 people tiptoeing into your bedroom, <laughs> surrounding your bed on all sides? Some of them have accordions. Some of them have tambourines. And at just the right moment, Theta had the light switch come on, and out of total darkness in a deep sleep, we hear 30 people singing, joy to the world. It's a wonder I didn't die of a heart attack that night. You know, I don't know about at your house, but you assume your bedroom is a safe place that crazy things like that are not going to happen. So the way the story ends, after, you know, I, I mean, I, I could have killed her. Theta was a ringleader and all that. And Dana, I'm really upset at you if you were part of that as well. That should not have been. So the only thing I can remember is Becky, of course, she immediately, once we realize there's people in our bedroom, Becky pulls the covers up over her because, you know, we don't want anybody to see us. Me, on the other hand, I put him down and was ready to kick him all out of the house. What are you doing in here? You know, like this is outrageous. But the, the story ends with Becky finally peeking out as they're walking out, laughing hysterically. And Becky kind of just barely over the sheet. She said, there's cookies and milk on the counter outside, out in the kitchen. <laughs> Going to be gracious to them, I'm sure, because that's what you do with carolers. Well, that's the night I got a little tired. I got a little bit tired of uh, of, uh, of some of the Christmas songs, but that was uh, that was in the past. And we're we're going to ask the Lord to still help us forgive them for that night as we go forward. Singing is a fabulous part of the Christmas experience. I have. Um, such love for so many of the Christmas hymns, all of them really, that we sing in the church. Certain ones emerge year after year and continue to enrich our Christmas celebration like O Holy Night. I have a personal favorite that is not as well known as some. It's called The Birthday of a King. Alleluia, oh how the angels sang. Love that song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing. O come, all ye faithful. So without a doubt, singing is part of the Christmas experience. But as I have walked through this season, enjoying all the music, listening to so many things, the radio of my car, <clears throat> I, 
have to ask the question, is it possible that we have allowed singing to take the place of true worship when it comes to the season of Christmas? I think it's an easy thing to have happen, that somehow we allow singing to fully substitute for what should be worship at the Christmas season. So I am reading over the Christmas story again. Often we read it, most often we read it in Luke. I, uh, I went to the Matthew account. And there's a phrase that stands out in the Matthew account of the Christmas story, which appears three times. And the Gospel of Matthew puts a spotlight uh, more than Luke on the Magi. Luke does more than the shepherds. And I, I think that they have something that, that the wise men have something to say to us. So let's read it, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to, here's the first time, to what? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he required of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word back to me so that I may come and... There's a second time. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and, there's a third time. And when they had opened their, their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Can I just get you to note with me this morning from our text, they did not come singing, they came worshiping. And I think it's good for all of us to re be reminded, and I'm going to take advantage of these few moments that I have. That there is a significant difference between singing and worshiping. But how easily we can get caught up in singing, as wonderful it is, and then forget to truly worship. And so all that brings me to th three thoughts that I just want to share with you quickly this morning regarding this idea of worship from the perspective of the wise men. If you're taking notes, this is a good time to start. Number one, worship defines the child. Would you say that for me, please? Worship defines who the child was in the manger. It is this defining of who was in the manger that really may very well be the reason why we have debate in our country over whether or not they will put up a manger scene with a baby in it on government property. That could be part of the issue. If it's just a baby, then just sing songs. But something tells me uh, that our government knows, just like Herod knew, that this was more than just a baby in that manger. Amen? You see, 
People are not threatened by a baby, but they are threatened by a king. And why are people threatened by a king? For one very reason, because a king comes to take over. A king comes to rule. A king comes to have authority and to say how it's supposed to be. And we live in a society that at Christmas time they're perfectly fine with a baby in a manger, but they don't want a king. They want pine trees decorated with tinsel and lights, but not a cross desecrated with a bloody man who's dying for the sins of the world. They want a Santa who has access to your chimney, not a God who wants access to your heart. They want a season where you'll give one day each year and not a God who wants every day of your year. Let let me say it like this. Santa wants your chimney. Jesus wants your heart. Santa wants one day. Jesus wants every day. Santa has a list of the naughty and nice. Jesus has one list. Everybody has sinned, but he has come to redeem everyone on that list and make a dynamic difference in the lives of people. I need a bigger amen than that. Some of you know a bit about the great 19th uh, century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who pastored what was probably considered to be the very first megachurch on the planet back in the 1800s. His church was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I've discovered something Spurgeon did that was really so powerful in light of this idea that worship defines the child. Uh, Spurgeon took one part of a message and he used it to define the first and the second coming of Christ. Now, as I approach this, I want to be sure we understand that Christianity has always employed two non-biblical words for these two events, the first and second coming. You'll never find the word Christmas in the Bible. It has Old English roots, and you'll never find the word rapture as surprised as you may be, you will not find the word rapture in the Bible as related to the coming of Christ. You'll find in places where it will say, and he was enraptured, or he was, a person was enraptured. But not, that word is not used as related to the second coming of Christ. They're just not there. But we use the word Christmas, and uh, a little trivia here for you, it's an old English word. It comes from Christes Messe, meaning Christ sent. That's where the word Christmas comes from. It's Old English. We use the word Christmas for the first coming or the advent of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem, and we use the word rapture or the Latin word raptio is where it comes from, which means raptio means a catching up or a catching away to speak of the second coming of Christ. But if you get nothing else this morning, please get this. That child who came the first time in a manger, he is going to come again. So what Spurgeon did was to take the first coming and the second coming, and he contrasted them. First coming, he comes as a baby. Second coming, he comes in all of his glory. By the way, when we celebrate Advent, Uh, That word Advent is simply the Latin word for coming. It's all it means. And for Christians, it embraces the idea of and celebrates both the first and second coming of Christ. This is what Charles Spurgeon gave his congregation. He was unexpected by most the first time, and few few will be ready for his second coming. He came as a baby, but he will return as a man. He sat at his mother's knee, but now the whole earth will bow at his feet. He appeared as an infant, but he will return as the infinite. 
Where is the carpenter's smock? Now he wears the, the, the purple robe of royalty. Where are his toil-worn feet? Now they are sandaled with light. I challenge you, world, to treat him now as you treated him the first time. Crowds come forward and try to throw him headlong off a hill. Step forward, Pharisees, and try to tangle him in his talk. Herodians, where is your penny to trap him? Sadducees, have you no riddle left? Smite him on the cheek now, soldier. Set him again in the chair and spit in his face, Roman soldier. Have you lost his old cloak that you used to cast on his shoulders? Where are your songs and your jokes now? Is there any, uh, is there any man among you now who dares to pluck hair out of his beard? He was righteous the first time. He shall be righteous the second time with the righteousness of supremacy. Then he came to endure the penalty. Now he will come to get his reward. He came to serve. Now he comes to rule. He came then to redeem. Now he comes to judge. He came then to save. Now he comes to sentence. Oh, Jesus, how great is the difference between your first and your second coming. He came then in poverty, but when he returns and comes the second time, he will return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Bethesda, don't ever... Be guilty of getting wrapped up in what the world has to sell that you miss what God has to give you today. Worship defines who that child is. Number two, worship means there's someone greater than you. Can you say that to me? Worship means... Do you know why Christmas has become all about us? It's because this is the only birthday that we celebrate where you can no longer mention the name of the person we're celebrating. Am I telling you the truth? Anytime, though, and we must understand this, particularly in the church, anytime you remove the name of Jesus from something, that situation then becomes all about you. Selah. Anytime you extract Christ from the center and you take him from the center of it all, then whatever it is that you are dealing with will become a humanistic expression every time. Regardless of how incredibly busy your schedule is right now, regardless of seemingly insurmountable to-do lists you're working on and the endless parties you may be intending, you are not the focus of this holiday and neither am I. Do you agree? There is someone greater than you and me who should be firmly affixed at the center of it all, and his name is Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah to that this morning. Now, all of you know that I can't preach a sermon without bringing up an old song or two or three. There is an old gospel song Let's see if I can stump Brent with this one. I love stumping Brent with old songs. There is an old gospel song called On My Father's Side. You got it? <laughs> it's a song about when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents found him in the temple. You know the story, conversing with the religious leaders. It's really the only childhood story that we have in the Bible about Jesus. 
The song proposes to offer, it, it is really interesting in its concept, it proposes to offer the contrast of two possible answers that Jesus gave to the questions that the religious leaders were asking him. And the chorus of this song, uh, I, I embellish just a tad bit here to make sure the point is clear, it goes like this. There's four questions that they ask in this chorus. What's your name, son? On my mother's side, my name is Jesus. But on my father's side, they call me Emmanuel, God with you. How old are you, son? On my mother's side now, I'm 12 years old. But on my father's side, I have always been, even from the beginning. Where are you from? On my mother's side, I'm from Bethlehem. But on my father's side, I'm from the new Jerusalem, a place none of you have ever even been before. I am sent from heaven. What's your plan? On my mother's side, I'll be crucified on a cross. But on my father's side, in three days, I will rise again. I will ascend to heaven to sit with my father, and I'm coming back with all power and glory. The problem for, that strikes us so often, church, is this. We can so easily get stuck on his mother's side when worship, when worship is all about his father's side. His mother's side looks at him as a baby. His father's side sees him as the king of kings and lord of lords. So worship defines who the baby is. Worship means there's someone greater than you. Number three, Lord, help me communicate this well. Music is not required for worship, but it sure is a great help. Music is not required for worship. I'm not sure I always believe that, but it sure is a great help. Worship is simply to focus intently on the one being worshipped, the, or the object of your worship. And there is always more than one possible expression. Now, in a congregation like Bethesda that's here this morning, there are as many different ideas about worship as there are noses in the room. Everybody has a different feeling about it. It's based upon maybe your background and your experience and where you come from or, or how you interpret Scripture. But there's a few things we have to understand together. Singing is generated by your voice. Worship is expressed by your life. I love the part of the Christmas story that we find, we wrote, wrote, uh, read it a moment ago in uh, verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down hmm, and worshiped. How many of you remember ever going to an amusement park or taking your kids to Six Flags or Disney, whatever, someplace with amusement, amusement rides? And remember some of those rides, there's a measuring stick that you have to be tall enough. You know what I'm talking about? And to see if you or your kids were tall enough for the big rides. Well, if your kids were like mine, when they come to that point, they would stand on their tippy toes they try to find something else to stand on. They were going to stretch and stretch and be as tall as they possibly could so that they could hit the mark. But then the day came. 
I remember when I took my kids to a McDonald's, back when McDonald's first started having play zones. And do you remember what they did? McDonald's did the opposite with their play zone. There was a marker there to measure your height for sure. But the difference was this. You had to be short enough to go in, not tall enough. And what McDonald's was basically saying to us was this. Size matters. Lowliness matters. Smallness matters. And there is something significant to be said for reducing ourselves, humbling ourselves when it comes to worship. Bethesda, we do not, we cannot, we dare not approach God as if we have all the answers. We don't approach God as if we have any of the answers. That's a newsflash to some of us today, I know. We need to understand that when we approach God, we never approach God like this. There's one way to approach Him, and that is like this. It's James who said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And yes, your worship may well be a physical humbling, as shown by your physical posturing, and that is always appropriate. But worship most certainly must be the humbling of your heart. It was the Lord Jesus himself who exampled this for us when he said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. I am humble and gentle at heart. He exampled that and you will find rest for your souls. I honestly can't recall where I heard this. It's been somewhere in the last few days. And it struck me again this morning as I arrived early on this campus, uh, finalizing my comments to you this morning. I heard this statement, or a statement like this, that it would be very easy to hear it and to miss the depth of it. If someone's casually hearing, they go, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, got, mm -hmm, got that, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, got that. It, it, there is an easy-to-grasp surface message in it. But for whatever reason, the Lord allowed me to hear it and go, bring, wait a minute. You need to see this from another angle. And when you take the time to ponder its greater meaning, there really is much more. And it's this. When someone says, I care, and it could be about a person, place, or thing. When someone says, I care, it means they have found, identified, and given value to that which they care about. They have found their heart for it. They have a heart for it. They care. But it's the opposite idea that concerns me most. For all too often, I hear someone say, I just don't care. I hear it in the church as much as I hear it outside the church. I just, I don't care. And that could also be about a person, place, or thing. When it comes to talking about a person, it's a dangerous position to be in to say that you have lost heart. To care means you found your heart. To say, I don't care, you have lost heart for that person. 
It is to say that you have lost value for that person. Now, I understand they may have hurt you. I understand they may have offended you. They may have rejected you. And your defense mechanism may be wanting to hurt and offend and reject them. I get that. But to do so and to be completely dismissive, dismissive of them is not the spirit of Jesus. I care. I have a heart for. I don't care. I've lost heart for if I ever even had it. To me, this idea is somewhere in the concept of understanding of worship toward the Lord Jesus. Because what really comes at the core of this idea is, do you have a heart for Jesus? Are you a cultural Christian that you go to church on Sunday because you're supposed to, you were raised to, mama did, grandma did? Are you a cultural Christian? Or do you genuinely have a heart for Jesus? And if you do, then surely, surely there is much more to the idea of worship than just an atmosphere or just singing as wonderful it is as it is in this place. But if atmosphere and singing is your only expression of worship, then at some point, dear one, and I mean that, someone needs to challenge you by asking you the simple question, do you care? Do you have a heart for? Because you want to know what the truth is? I can sing all kinds of songs without heart. I can sing hymns without heart. I can sing lovely worship songs. I can sing lyrics of any kind without heart. Now, I can cover it up, and we do that, but there is a difference. What is the difference in worshiping just in song and finding a genuine place where you say, but I care. I care. There's value in my relationship with Jesus because I know what he's done for me. It is important that we care because the spirit of Jesus is a benevolent spirit, both toward God and toward people. And the reality is that Jesus left the splendor of heaven and came into a world that did not care. It had no room for him, which is unfortunately also part of the Christmas story. But somehow God in his sovereign grace allows us to open our hearts to him. I really pray today that he who has ears to hear this will hear it. God in his grace allows us to open our hearts to him in ever-increasing ways. One of the majestic and awesome understandings of a walk with Christ is that we never really arrive until we get to the streets of glory. It is an increasing, I've said it oftentimes at the end of a service, when making an altar appeal for people to come to Christ. There is a point of salvation, there's a starting place, and then there's a journey. And along that journey, there may even be maturity and seasoning in that journey, but you never reach a place where your heart 
for Jesus cannot expand further. You never reach that. And God in his grace allows us to open our hearts to him, to receive him as he stands at the door of our hearts and knocks. And it reminds me of one more song for today. Have you any room for Jesus? He who bore your load of sin. As he knocks and asks admission, sinner, will you let him in? Room for Jesus, King of glory, hasten now his word obey. Swing the heart's door widely open. Bid him enter while you may. Second verse. Room for pleasure, room for business, but for Christ the crucified. Not a place that he can enter in the heart for which he died. Room for Jesus, King of glory. Hasten now, his word obey. Swing the heart's door widely open. Bid him enter while you may. Brent, come help me. If worship defines the child in the manger, if worship means there's someone greater than you, and if worship is more than just music, then what is the challenge to us today? The challenge to those of us who are believers in this room is this. Do we really care? Do you really care? Do you still care? Do you still have a heart for Jesus? If so, how are you expressing it? And then there's a challenge to those in this room this morning who've never committed your life to Jesus. And that's this. What do you do for someone who's given you their life? Someone who's given their life for you. It's very simple. You give your life to them. That's what you do. Bow your heads with me this morning, please, just for a moment. No one leaving from this point. Would you please honor and respect the house of the Lord? Just hold still just for a moment. Father, what a delightful time this Christmas is. What a challenge from your word. That there are always more places that we can go in God. There's always more to be extracted from your word. There's always more, always more. And Lord, we're asking for more, more and more. But I pray for all of us for this Christmas season that we won't just go through the mechanics of doing what we do with all the hustle and all the bustle. But there truly will be some part of this next week that we set aside to say, Lord, yes, not only do I have room for you, I want you to come in and take full control because you are the king and you have come to rule and you have come to reign. So inasmuch, Lord Jesus, as we do lift our voices to sing songs, let them simply be a catalyst used to open the expression of our hearts because our hearts want to express love to you, adoration to you, to express your holiness in our lives, your purity in our lives, the goodness of God in our lives, and we must acknowledge all of that. So I pray it happens in the mighty name of Jesus. With your heads bowed very quickly, is there anyone here in the house this morning that says, Pastor Dan, it's time for me to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've been putting it off. Maybe you have 
wandered away, but you want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, would you just simply, simply lift your hand quickly so I can pray for you? Anybody in the house at all? Saying yes to Jesus. Yes, sir, in the balcony, I see that hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. Sir, I would love for you to come and chat with me when we dismiss the service. I would love the privilege of praying with you personally, and I will do that. Let's stand, congregation.